Let's go before our promise-keeping God. Lord Almighty, we do give You glory because You are the King of kings and the President of presidents, and therefore we shall not fear. Amen. In 60 hours, you and I will probably know who our next elected president is. How do you feel about that? Rejoicing? Excited to see what great things God can do in our nation through our elected leaders? Does it scare you that the election will be over in 60 hours? Does it raise your blood pressure? It shouldn't. You serve the King of Kings. You serve the President of Presidents. And there is no King. There is no Governor. There is no Lord. There is no President. There is no elected political officer anywhere that is not directly a servant of the Lord even if he or she will not bow the knee voluntarily. Now, the name of these last four sermons has been, Who Should I Vote For? And all we've done so far, if you've paid attention at all, is talk about how the Christian rightly relates him or herself to the government. Tonight, we're going to come to Romans 13. I've saved this for last for several reasons. One is because in Romans 13, many of the principles about Christian relating to the government are reviewed. They're, they're said all over again. And so we're going to quickly kind of go through that. And then we also see in Romans chapter 13 a very brief, definitely not complete, and I'm not pretending that it's a complete, but a brief description of what it is the government ought to do. And so infrequently does. But we want to know, and, and this is important, in brief, what could we say, biblically speaking, is the responsibility of the government to the Christian? So let's start with the very most basic requirement. The glory of God. Isaiah 48.11 For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. We as a people are going to elect Hillary Rodham Clinton or Donald something Trump. J. Yeah, something J. And that person will be elected and will take the oath of office for the glory of God because you serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. Amen. You guys are getting used to me. I need some more amens. Now this is foundational. This is absolutely central. This is not peripheral. Discussion of the separation of church and state aside, and discussion of whose interpretation of Scripture I'm not going to talk about, but the job of everyone, everywhere, and in everything is to bring glory to God. This and the many other verses is why Pastor Benji has said 
for years to us that we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. Including our voting and our reaction to the vote that's going to happen on Tuesday. So, we come to Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Okay, breathe. All right. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay all to, to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Now due to the limitations of a topical series, which is what we've been doing these last couple of weeks, and if you've been with me very long, you know I don't do this very often, in part because it's hard to keep the continuity. But Romans is such an important book, I'm going to water ski through the whole book so you can see where Romans 13 lands. In chapter 1, Paul introduces his concern for the good news of Jesus Christ. And he wishes the Romans to know that this good news is for everyone including Nero, including President Obama and whoever our next president is going to be. And let me tell you a secret. Also including your annoying neighbor. The good news is for them as well. Now, at the end of Romans chapter 1 and then through chapters 2 and 3, we discover that every single person that has ever lived stands in need of this good news because you and I stand guilty in our sin. Chapter 4 of Romans then states the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. It's the clearest explanation of this doctrine in the Bible. And then 5, 6, 7, and 8 are intensely interesting chapters. In chapter 5, Paul declares that we are free from the fear of the wrath of God. In chapter 6, Paul declares that we are free from the power of sin. In chapter 7, Paul declares that we are free from the law. And in chapter 8, the climax of this section, Paul declares that you and I are free from death and condemnation there is therefore now what no. no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus now 9 through 11 in Romans is the most widely misunderstood section of Romans but it's really not that complicated Paul is 
is trying to explain one of his big ideas in the book of Romans. You could think of book of Romans as a railroad track. And the railroad track needs this metal line and it needs this metal line and you got to have both or you're not going to have a track. And on this track, Paul is desperately trying to say what is new about the good news. And on this track, all the way through Romans, Paul is desperately trying to explain what is the same. How is what is new come out of what is old? And you got this railroad track, and in 9 through 11, Paul is dealing with some big issues. Namely, how is it that the good news is new, that it truly is good news, and how is it that it's an extension of the fact, the, the principle found in, throughout the Old Testament that there is only a remnant that is saved. When you look at 9-11 through 11 like that, a lot of the mystery disappears. Chapter 12 begins the second large division of the book of Romans. And this is where Paul begins to describe, in light of this doctrine, salvation by grace through faith, he who by faith is justified shall live. How is it that they shall indeed live? So 13 explains three very big issues, all of which we're only going to be able to water ski through tonight. How does a Christian relate to government? How does a Christian relate to the law? And then, how does the Christian relate or live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again? And you have to have these three ideas for this chapter to make sense. If you take one or the other out of it, all of a sudden you lose the continuity of the chapter. So let's begin again by reviewing in brief the chief principles that we've talked about in the last three, now four weeks. Verses 1-3, through three, Paul writes, "...let every person be subject to the governing authorities." For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." Now you're going to recognize here all the things we've been talking about for the last three weeks honor authority this isn't an option you don't get to look at Nero and say well that guy's a particularly heinous ruler so I'm not going to honor him no Paul is talking about Nero well probably not yet Nero comes on about a year or two after he writes Romans but that's another point honor authority be subject to the governing authorities, Paul says. Do not resist the authorities God has appointed and do what is good. Now, I'm not going to stay here a lot because we've been through this. But I do think that it's interesting. His commands seem to take a greater and greater foundational role in what it is we are to do. Be subject to the governing authorities. Don't drive 80 miles an hour on the freeway. Don't resist 
the authorities that God appointed. But then he ends this particular part by do what is right. Do the right thing. This is important. And I think that is key because Paul is is going to argue, and we're going to get there in a second, that honoring authority is going to mean honoring the ultimate authority when this authority is in the wrong. Because there will always be earthly governing authorities that will demand absolute obedience to their derived authority. But as with every single command to a human authority that is commanded throughout Scripture, for example, the parents or the husband or the pastor elder, that person always only has derived authority and therefore never has absolute authority. You need to, you need to fundamentally get that or you're going to miss a lot of the commands to obey authority. We are never commanded to obey a command of any authority that is contrary to the will of God as expressed in His Word. Now, it seems apparent to me, it seems pretty clear to me that our nation is already a long ways down the road to a statist government. A government that puts the state above all else and will demand, let's just be honest, worship. It's happened thousands of times in the past. And whether it comes as a left-wing status government or whether it comes as a right-wing status government really ultimately doesn't matter because the world has been littered on both sides of history with left and right-wing status governments. Roman Empire, Nazi Germany, Communist Russia. Ayn Rand is someone with whom I don't agree a lot on. But she said this prophetically. And we, sorry, the projector's down so you can't read it. So you've got to listen carefully. The degree of statism in a country's political system is the degree to which it breaks up the country into rival gangs and sets men against one another. Whew. I remember back in the good old days in the 1970s, do any of you guys remember the 1970s? <laughs> Just wondering. We used to sing a song, The Great American Melting Pot. It was on, uh, what was that cartoon called? Help me out here, somebody. Schoolhouse Rock, thank you. I knew my wife would remember. And then we had this month's celebration. Then we had that celebration. We had this day, and we had that day, and we all of a sudden start vying for more and more attention. Which, listen, I am happy to have Cinco de Mayo because that means I get to eat tacos. I mean, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. Mexican food isn't Mexican food. It's just food. Sorry, Chet. But... But when they start dividing each other, when individual rights are abrogated, there is no way to determine who is entitled to what. Because no longer does it matter who has a legitimate call on something, we'll take one-tenth of one-hundredth of one percent of the population and make their rights absolute. This is not a mistake what they're doing, people. I'm going to get off this really soon. 
The criterion therefore reverts to the tribal concept of one's wishes are limited only by the power of one's gang. And we are Christians. And no matter how quote-unquote powerful we are, we aren't going to use our power to fight. I am not going to shoot at the FBI or the ATF or any paramilitary group that comes into town. Why? Because those are the souls that I want to save and send to heaven, not to hell. We are not here to exercise our power. We'll talk about more of that in a minute. Our government is a long ways towards making this vision of Ayn Rand a reality. And you are going to be commanded to do a great many things more than bake a cake or take pictures for the regime in power. Relax. Don't worry. You are not the first people to have faced these barbarisms. Our family has been sent to lions and we have been set up on pikes and then had tar poured on us and lit so that Nero could have light in his garden. Relax! We're good! This is an okay place to be. In fact, Dallas Willard made this very clear. And this is a big idea. This world, this present world, is a perfectly safe place for you to be. This present world is a perfectly safe place for you to be. Why? Because even if you do go to a FEMA camp or you get set on a pike and burned so that Nero can have a light, no ultimate harm can come to you. But only that which brings glory to your Father in heaven. This world is a perfectly safe place for us to be, not because bad things can't happen. They can and they do and they will and they are. But because those bad things will not define our eternity. And when thinking about our government and its laws that are contrary to God's law, remember what Luther said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And it bears repeating what I've said at least twice in the last couple of weeks. Civil disobedience is sometimes the right thing to do. When you believe it is the right thing to do, however, you need two things. You need, number one, to be willing to take the consequences for your disobedience. And, based upon this passage and others, you would better be sure that you're doing what is right. In other words, don't just go be civilly disobedient because you got this idea off Facebook that some wacko who doesn't know anything posted and said, well, you should do this because you're a Christian. Well, show me a verse. Show me why I should do it. Or not do it. When you vote this Tuesday, you must remember that you are obliged to serve those who are elected and those laws that are passed, even if they make you vomit. Unless, of course, you intentionally choose not to and you know why you are not doing it. Anybody in this room ever go to jail because they protested at a Planned Parenthood? I know one person. 
But Paul continues, and he gives us the reason why we should honor authority in verses 4 to 7. He said, for he, the governing official, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay, all, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Now, this passage, and again, I'm, I, I'm not going to go through item by item, but it says that the government is responsible to do at least three things. Number one, promote the good. Okay, that's, that's pretty bland. Number two, punish evil. Okay, that's pretty good. But then you run into verse 6. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. What is that? Ministering to God. Serve the Lord. Wait, 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 wait. Wait a minute. Did I read that right? Is the government supposed to serve the Lord? What about church, separation of church and state? Well, evidently, Paul never read that part of the Constitution. That's not in the Constitution. We'll talk about that later. Indeed, and for as long as we live in this sin-sick world, we will have to accept imperfection. But Paul is clear on how things could be, how they should be. Does this mean that I want the job to do that? Oh, heavens no. But the chapter is not finished. We have seen, as I said, a quick review of everything we've talked about. And then we see here a quick presentation of what the government is supposed to do. And believe me, I wish we could take a whole nother week just to cover that topic in itself because there's a lot to cover. But the chapter is not done. And I believe that Paul wrote these ideas to be held together. Paul continues past what is the Christian's requirement relative to the government and considers the law. Now, Pastor Benji was kind to us to point out this morning that this is not an easy subject to wade through. How the Christian rightly relates to the law is the subject of books on my bookcase. And if you actually went to a library, it's shelves of books. But actually, I think what Paul says here in Romans 13, 8 to 10 is pretty straightforward. Paul says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to commit adultery with them. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to murder them. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal. If you love your neighbor, you aren't going to covet what they have. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Again, I would love to spend time on this. But here is the point. 
I want you to be honest. You don't have to say this out loud and you don't have to raise your hand, but I want to ask the question again. Are you afraid about who is going to win on Tuesday? Again, just answer that within your own mind and heart. Because if you are afraid, then, according to John, you are not going to be able to love. John says in 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love. You will not be able to love your neighbor if you're afraid of who's going to win on Thursday. You're going to be fretting and you're going to be watching the news or else you're going to be like me. I don't want to watch the news. Is anybody else, is that anybody else like that? Okay, good. I, I didn't think I was all alone. Are you worried about what laws are going to be passed? Are you worried about who's going to get appointed to the Supreme Court? Are you worried about whose agenda, whose worldview is going to be promoted as we go through the next four, eight, 20 years? If you are, and again, be honest, because the Lord already knows, and it's Him that you're talking to right now, not me or anybody else in the room. If you're worried about these things, then you're not going to be able to pray. And remember, as we said the last two weeks, you cannot pray and sin against someone at the same time. Why do I say that? Because in Philippians chapter 4 through 8, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, pray. You cannot do the same, you cannot do the two at the same time. You cannot be anxious and pray. You're going to do one or you're going to do other. Okay, now time out, time out, relax. If you're anxious and that drives you to prayer, that's a good thing, right? And Jesus has got that covered. But the point is this. You're either going to fret, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Or you're going to find yourself on your knees praying, God, help us. Instead, Romans 15, 13. Write this down on your notes. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. With what? Joy and peace. Why? So you can love and you can pray. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, in trusting His promises, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Can you muster the love and the hope and the prayer for your enemies? No, you can't because you're a sinner, just like me. So rely on the Spirit and say, Lord, I can't do this, but you can do it in me and through me. Love, my friends, is the fulfilling of the law, the primary law, the laws whose warnings are greater than Caesar's. Love your neighbor with no fear and pray for those who lead you and you will rejoice because you will have peace. You will have hope that the world just doesn't have. 
And Peter tells us in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, there's going to be people who hate you anyways. But they'll see the, okay, I can do this. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Lord says, those are the people who are going to look at you, and they're going to say, wow, I want a piece of what he's got. When you love those around you, you have proof positive that the world cannot muster that you belong to the Son of God. And if you belong to Jesus, the President of Presidents, you are safe and you are loved. If you belong to Jesus, You are safe and you are loved. This Tuesday night at 10 o'clock, you are safe and you are loved. You are safe and you are loved. You are safe and you are loved. Breathe. Oh my. Let's be honest. I am preaching this series because I'm a scared little boy. There's so much. Mommy! I am scared. I am the one who is struggling with this. Anybody else with me? I need, I, need, I need to know somebody else is struggling with this. And when I'm struggling, it reminds me of something the, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why do you think Paul had to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Why do you think he said that? Well, it seems pretty easy to me. He was either ashamed, he knew that he was tempted to be ashamed, or he knew that it was going to be a common problem that people are going to be ashamed. Well, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. What? What are you talking about? Well, you know, Jesus is coming back. What? That was 2,000 years ago. He knew that there was going to be cause for shame. And he knew that his heart would be tempted to fearfulness. We think of Paul as this great giant who always did what was right. Man, he put his toga on one leg at a time just like you do. But he also knew the King of Kings and the President of Presidents. And he knew that Caesar was not ultimately in charge. And I believe that Paul knew the struggle with the reality of obeying the Roman governmental authorities. And he knew that Christians throughout the centuries and the millennia were going to have the same struggles and 
looking at the lions and the gladiatorial games or looking at the cross or looking at whatever torture they've come up with us or even looking at the FEMA camps. Paul knew that you and I would need hope. So, what can give us that hope? I'm glad you asked. Because Paul answers, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Hey, come on. Get busy. Get the day rolling. Get working in the Lord's field. Why? Oh Lord, good news. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now there's a whole sermon in that. But here's what I want you to get. Put off the flesh in terms of being afraid and worried and fearful and bitter and consumed by all that the world wants you to be consumed by so that you'll miss the good news. You are safe and you are loved. How do I know? Because Jesus is coming back. And He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the President of presidents. Therefore, I don't need to be afraid. Come on, people. You know me. What do I need? Thank you. My friends, in your future, there is nothing but grace. Even FEMA camps is nothing but grace because it will make for you a glorious eternity that 50 years from now because I don't think Jesus is going to tarry more than 50 years and even if he does I don't think this body is going to last 50 more years so 50 years from now I'm going to be saying whatever it was that I went through between now and then woo! praise Jesus because it's gone and my history my my future will be nothing but grace how do I know that? 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What was that? Shipwreck. Getting beat 40 times. Getting stoned to death. Getting all these bad things happened. You are loved and you are safe. 2 Timothy 1.12 Paul says, I am not ashamed. He's talking about the suffering that he faces. I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You are safe, and you are loved. My friends, Tuesday night, 
when the election results are rolling in, we're all going to be glued to the computer. I mean, let's just be honest. We want to know. But we don't have to be afraid. You are safe and you are loved. Lord Jesus, thank you for making us safe and loved. Thank you, Jesus, that we can come before you and know that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, and that we have more reason to hope than anyone else, no matter what party they're rooting for, no matter what party wins. In Jesus' name, amen.